Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 360, Charles Abroad. A couple of quick things and two reasons for you to visit thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Firstly, a year's membership of the History of England is the ultimate Christmas present. And secondly, Henry, my son and I made a short video for you all about the historic village of Ewelm, where the Dukes of Suffolk and Alice Chaucer ruled and Henry VIII and Elizabeth may have swum. Both these glittering opportunities can be found by just going to thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Right, now look, I've thoroughly enjoyed a bit of a change of pace by looking into Charles and Henrietta Maria's court. The workings of royal courts are continually and compellingly fascinating in some weird way. Not quite sure why. Just such a false world. Could you imagine living that way? Not surprising, so many monarchs in every corner of the world seem to be barking mad. Anyway, having established that Charles in many ways lived in an odd, closed world, but which had many admirable qualities, let us get back to the serious business of governing and politics, or specifically to the sort of game monarchs love to play, the great game of international relations. Notebooks out, glasses on, wipe that smile off your face, and let's get down to it. Now, obviously, Charles now lacked money. And we'll come to all the money-making schemes in the next episode and all the trouble and grief that causes. Money can be like that. And as we heard a couple of episodes ago, everyone in the international scene were very, very aware and slightly smug about England's lack of the sinews of war and therefore clout. So, 
to get back some credibility, the very first thing required, which Charles was not slow to realise, to be fair, was that costs needed to be cut so that he had more money. Now, far more effective than doing anything genuinely painful like cutting Charles's art collecting or Henrietta Maria's jewellery budget was peace. To abandon Elizabeth and Frederick of the Rhine Palatinate, throw Europe's Protestants to the wolves. That's now me adopting the style of John Eliot and John Pym and speaking in the outraged Puritan idiom, had I do. Seriously, though, War was a no-no without a serious realignment of the Crown's prerogative rights around taxation and that sort of thing. Foreign wars are all about money, money, money. It's a rich man's world and must be banished from the royal mind. From now on, any foreign policy objectives must be obtained by other means, by the power of the word and the twisting of arms, rather than by force. The absence of a big stick would, however, remain something of a problem, but no matter... The velvet glove must be enough. Peace with France, then, was actually relatively straightforward. After all, the whole point, the Huguenots of La Rochelle, they'd been beaten anyway and subjected to the new rules of the French state along the road to absolutism, conversion and expulsion. If the war had been the war of favourites, as some believed, well, that problem had been dispatched by Felton's cheese knife meeting Buckingham's heart. And after all, look, the English and the French were tied together by bonds of eternal love in the form of Henrietta Maria. So peace was arrived at with almost indecent speed, almost before the ink was dry on the proclamation of dissolution of Parliament by April 1629. The rather exotically named Treaty of Sousa was not, in fact, signed at the ancient capital of Elam in Persia, but in Piedmont, where it went hand in hand with a treaty signed between France and Savoie. By this treaty, we both agreed to be nice and not hit each other, and reconfirmed the details of the marriage agreement, and swore not to interfere in each other's religious affairs. Interestingly, it was agreed that any territory captured up to the treaty during the war could be kept, but not those bits captured after the treaty was signed and before somebody had heard about it. By which rule, the English then had to return Quebec to New France and the Scots had to return land in Nova Scotia. Interesting. And by the way, I've not forgotten that we really should be covering new colonies in North America and the Caribbean in particular. We will do that before the Civil Wars kick off. Promise. Anyway, so peace broke out between England and France at pretty much the same time as peace broke out between Charles and Henrietta Maria. Spain was a rather tougher nut to crack for Charles, because it meant abandoning Elizabeth of the Palatinate. Obviously, he had the best wishes of many of the Privy Council, who were very pro-Spain and Catholic, or heading that way, and conversely, he had absolutely zero support from the vast majority of his country. They were horrified at the very thought of peace with Spain and produced a steady stream of pamphlets when they realised discussions were going that way. However, things for Charles were eased in May 1630 with the birth of his son and heir, born in an oak tree, or maybe the oak tree comes later anyway, although Charles still felt strongly for his sister Elizabeth and his family pride. The edge had been taken off things now, because Elizabeth was not now also his heir to the English throne. 
Now, foreign policy was very much Charles's gig. Political leaders do like strutting around on the international stage, do they not? You get so much more respect for it rather than messing around with the domestic stuff. Anyway, Charles made it clear to the British Council that this was his province. So it was he that met Rubens during the diplomatic discussions, though he did invite Richard Weston along as treasurer. Foreign policy was most definitely part of the arcane mysteries of being a king. Ordinary folk could hardly be expected to be able to cope with such rarefied stuff. He and Weston decided that Francis Cottington would be just the right bloke to go to Spain to negotiate a treaty. The decision was then presented to the Privy Council as a fait accompli. No opportunity for debate. Now Charles, at the start, fully intended that there would be no treaty without satisfaction on the Palatinate and his sister. But it became clear that simply wasn't going to happen and Charles had no leverage to make it happen. In addition, Cottington himself felt that persuading or forcing their cousins, the emperors, to put Elizabeth and Frederick back on the Palatinate was probably beyond King Philip IV's leverage anyway. And so, although Dorchester on the Privy Council, a friend and former diplomat to the Dutch Republic, tried to throw a spanner in the works, the treaty was duly completed by November 1630, and England at Spain were once again at peace. The Treaty of Madrid is actually a good deal more wild than it appears at first glance. So essentially, it reconfirmed the Treaty of 1604, committing England to withdraw support from the Dutch Republic, which was a double whammy for good Protestants, of course. Not only peace with the Pope's sword, but abandonment of their brothers and sisters of the Reformed religion in the Low Countries. And the Palatinate wasn't even mentioned. But Charles's subjects would have been even more upset if they'd known of the secret clauses known as the Cottington Treaty. This did mention the Platinet, albeit in very vague terms. Of course, we'll do our very best, best endeavours, that sort of thing. If it did happen, though, get this, England was then committed to invading the Dutch Republic in concert with Spain. Now that is a turnaround of monumental proportions. England had been supporting the Republic for decades now and religious links and sympathies were very close. But anyway, the prospect was pretty remote in Cottington's view anyway, but it was a clause embarrassing enough to keep away from most privy councillors' understanding and knowledge. For most of the 1630s, Charles then followed a broadly pro-Spanish, pro-Catholic strategy. This is interestingly stubborn of him, since it put his foreign policy 180 degrees away from the desires of the vast majority of his people, as I have mentioned. But Charles was now so definitively over the glories of surfing the wave of public enthusiasm against the wishes of his father and government. They were banished to the follies of his youth. Now, the public wants what the public gets. Charles's relationship with his people was going underground. What did continue to weigh most highly with him remained the vague hope of restoring his sister and brother-in-law to the Palatinate, even if the succession was now secure in England. Talking of follies, Charles did have a couple of prejudices I think that you ought to know about, which is cool. I mean, we all have our prejudices. Life wouldn't be any fun without a few quirks, as long as they don't control us, and Charles was fully able to keep him under control. But they do have an influence on his policy, and I'm going to mention two of them first. One, 
He was not a fan of the Dutch, which is unfortunate, but is probably reflected in that Cottington's clause we talked about. And it maybe speaks to the same reason that made him sympathise with the Spanish and their fear of being surrounded by radical Protestant powers. Charles was a good deal more again radical Calvinists than he was again Catholics. And the Dutch were, of course, hot for the Reformed religion. And also, of course, they were increasing commercial rivals and pretty far ahead of England to boot. And the growing strength of their navy was challenging England's rather forlorn claim to sovereignty of the narrow seas, which the superior Dutch navy flaunted with ease. Of which more later, by the way. So there's that. Number two, he's not keen on the French either, which is odd, given Henrietta Maria, his wife, the new peace, and so on. But it probably has something to do emotionally with that old rivalry between Charles's best bud Buckingham and his hatred of Richelieu, the humiliation of the failure to rescue La Rochelle, and that traditional English-French thing. And, of course, in 1631, at the Treaty of Fontainebleau, the French signed a treaty of support for Maximilian of Bavaria, the man who was in the process of removing the Palatinate from Frederick and Elizabeth. So, what's to like? Charles still claimed the French throne, in theory, of course, though I doubt that kept him awake at night. So, what was Queen Henrietta's view of international relationships? You'd imagine that she would be A, mad keen for a French alliance, and B, mad keen to support the Catholic international cause. And to be fair, most of the English thought both things to be true to their dying day, not helped by Henrietta Maria's deeply insensitive and flamboyant support for English Catholics in London and the court. But in fact, Henrietta Maria was a good deal more subtle than that, and anyway, we're not all about logic, are we? Emotion forms an unfeasibly large role in our decision-making, as in my case, I should not buy that chocolate bar because I'm an out-of-control porker, but oh look, I just bought one for now and another for later, because I want to. Well, there's a thing. Henrietta was very close to her mother, Marie de Medici, who was very influential in her life and very powerful politically in France. But then in 1630, Marie's son, the king, and his favourite minister, Richelieu, engineered Marie's removal from power in France, and worse, in 1631 actually forced her flight to the Spanish Netherlands and exile. Henrietta Maria felt deeply for her mother's humiliation and became very cool towards her brother and his government. The other thing was that Henrietta Maria absolutely detested the leading Spanish alliance cheerleader on the Privy Council, Richard Weston, the treasurer, I think largely because she felt Weston kept her budget on a shoestring, which could have legs, given that Weston had the job of clearing a £2 million royal debt and the king refusing to call Parliament to give him a subsidy. So she might have a point, to be fair. Slightly counterintuitively, Henrietta Maria was for a while drawn, therefore, into an alliance with the Earl of Arundel, who'd been on a failed mission to the Emperor, and with the Protestant Patriot faction on the Council, as represented by Henry Rich, the Earl of Warwick's brother, uh, the Earl of Holland, and also with the Marquis of Hamilton. Now, Hamilton is an important character. He will become one of Charles's most important advisers on Scottish affairs, and in 1633, will also be made an English Earl and sit on the English Privy Council. That is most unusual 
for the Scottish and English Privy Councils to overlap in any way. Whether or not Henrietta Maria exercised much influence on political and diplomatic decisions on Charles at this point is probably quite unlikely, although it will happen later. But somewhere her views must have been on Charles's mind. But look, everything about foreign policy was very fluid, despite that orientation towards Spain as a way of achieving the desired result in the Palatinate as the general central policy. So, in 1630, for example... A Protestant saviour finally appeared in the Thirty Years, and Lord, did they need one. This was, of course, Gustav II Adolf, posthumously to be renamed Gustavus Adolphus the Great, as I aspire one day posthumously to be renamed David the Reasonably Acceptable. Sweden in those days constituted a major regional Baltic power, incorporating what is now Finland. Gustavus Adolphus was a reformer at home, but is mostly known to us, I suppose, as something of a military genius who swept onto the scene and reversed the tide of imperial victories with the annihilation of the imperial army under Tilly at Breitenfeld in 1631. Now, as you can imagine, English Protestants loved Gustavus Adolphus, saviour of the Protestant cause, a real poster boy for them. And the Swedish Lion of the North, contrasted rather unfavourably with Charles's art collecting and penury and lack of arminess. In 1632, Gustavus attacked Bavaria and he offered Charles a deal. Look, Charles, for the knockdown price of 200,000 nicker, he'd recover the Palatinate for him. For a while, it looked as though a deal might be done and the Protestant faction at court looked forward to a massive revival of their fortunes. Meanwhile, this is a period when very large numbers of people, many thousands of English and Scots, were travelling to the continent to fight for the Protestant cause as private citizens and volunteers, while many Irish youth, by the way, were travelling the other way to Europe to fight for the Catholic cause. Many English leaders will start the civil wars with direct experience of modern warfare from the continent, but it was particularly true of the Scots. Scottish soldiers gained a powerful reputation amongst the Swedes in particular. When the civil wars start, the Scots would have a distinct advantage, led as they were by talented and experienced military commanders, such as Alexander Leslie, who had risen high in the Swedish army. Field marshal, I think. Could be wrong about that. But events conspired against and all that. Gustavus cannily doubted Frederick's ability to actually keep hold of the Palatinate afterwards if he was given it, and indeed... Charles's ability to pay, so he proposed to retain the Palatinate until all the bills were paid. Frederick objected to that, and then Frederick settled matters by dying. In addition, Gustavus himself then died during a Pyrrhic victory at Lützen in November 1632, and although Sweden remained a powerful player, the deal was off. It could never have been that likely to raise the money Charles would have been forced to call Parliament, and that he was not going to do. And then in 1635, another little swing in policy, with a defeat for Sweden at Donauwörth, which encouraged France to enter the war to prevent a Spanish and imperial whitewash. It coincided with the arrival in England of Frederick and Elizabeth's son, Charles Louis, the new Protestant claimant, of course, to the Palatinate of the Rhine, and along with him, his younger brother Rupert, Charles's nephew. We'll be hearing quite a bit more about Prince Rupert and boy, his devil dog, you can be sure. Well, 
Everyone got very excited again, as Charles Louis was another embodiment of the Protestant cause. As his ship sailed into Dover Harbour, everyone was cheering, waving flags, hanging out the bunting. There was an English Navy ship there to welcome him, which gave a saluting cannonade as per normal. Sadly, they were so excited by the occasion they forgot they weren't supposed to be including the cannonball. Just big bang and a puff of smoke was all that was needed, rather than the cannonball that smashed into Charles Lewis' ship, killed four men, one of them just two paces from the prince. I am proud. That's the very best of an English welcome for you. A welcome you won't forget. Once again, for a while... It seemed as though a change and a Protestant campaign might just happen. Charles actually appeared to be threatening war, and the Spanish ambassadors by February 1637 seemed to think it was a genuine possibility. Weston had died in 1635, and so the pro-Spanish faction was weakened at court. Arundel came back from a visit to the imperial court spitting feathers, since all he'd done was hang around and be ignored and it had become absolutely clear diplomacy could achieve nothing, and he was just being jerked around. In truth, the Spanish also had absolutely no intention of helping the English to recover the Palatinate. Their policy was simply designed to keep the English fleet from helping the Dutch. But it is hard to believe Charles was doing anything but dreaming the dreams of children if he ever really pretended to himself he would actually enter the war. He would not recall Parliament. The fleet, as we will discuss in a moment, was a shadow of its former glory. His finances had improved, but he had no cash. Charles had a desperate desire to believe diplomacy could have an impact. He even reopened negotiations with the Vatican, which had zero chance of yielding anything of use and put the wind right up his subjects and added to the narrative that Charles was a closet papist. There is a lovely engraving referred to in Claire Jackson's book, Devil Land, which has Charles asleep in a chair, while on one side, Charles Louis, the French and the English fleet are ready for war. But the king cannot be woken from his slumber because the Spanish ambassador was lulling him to sleep by playing panpipes. It is an image that has some truth in it. If Charles thought he could get anywhere, he was kidding himself, though a revival of the navy could yield dividends if it could be achieved. In addition, although Charles's sister Elizabeth was furious at Charles's inability to have any impact on European affairs, there was something of a movement at court that celebrated the benefits of peace. On a diplomatic mission to the imperial court, one of England's ambassadors came back and recorded with horror stories of what war had done to Germany. Germany, the greatest and formerly the fairest country of Europe, is now the most miserable and looks hideous to the eye. Diverse mortal wounds, gasping for life like a body whose veins are exhausted of blood. Arundel had seen exactly the same thing, travelling with a bohemian called Wenselessness Holler in Europe. An engraver, actually, whose skilful pictures exposed the horrors of war throughout Europe. He is also the man, incidentally, with a major responsibility for later excessive violence in Ireland, since it was his engravings that did much to persuade English and Scottish Protestants that 100,000 Protestants had been killed by Catholic rebels in Ireland in 1641. But that is a future story. 
The Venetian envoy in London at this time, Anzolo Correr, identified a faction at court that was neither pro-Spanish nor pro-France. Rather, he summed up their attitude as how useful and opportunities to stand and look on at tragedy of others as spectators and enjoy peacefully that blessedness which God has chosen to grant to these realms amid such universal calamities. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now then. I think that effectively brings us up to date on the frankly rather inconsequential and ineffectual nature of Charles's diplomacy. England's weight in European affairs pretty much depended on money and navy. I don't think I'm being too unfair on England's military reputation by land. You probably have to go back to Henry V before we did anything earth-shattering on that front. Though I may be guilty of underplaying England's contribution to the independence of the Dutch, there were very many years of reasonably low-level but continuous support there. Probably I should have talked about that more. But even then, without money, if England was to have any impact on European diplomacy, it was the fleet to which Europe would look. So, that means we should spend a little time on the English Navy, because I do like navel-gazing. I think there are many probably bad reasons why I'm enthusiastic about talking about matters naval, but the biggest is my almost complete ignorance of any aspects of sailing. I have often thought that ignorance is the mother of enthusiasm. Have I inflected this half-baked theory on you before? If I have, sorry. As a man totally ignorant of anything in engineering, for example, I was fired with enthusiasm when I was a book rep by J.E. Gordon's book, Structures or Why Things Don't Fall Down. I have remembered zip about it, but it was a great book. Anyway, for good or ill, here we go, gazing at navies. There are, I suppose, a couple of views about Charles I and his navy. One is that he wasted his money on fine decorations and out-of-date ships that made him look grand but didn't address England's strategic needs, reinforcing the image of a king drunk on his own grandeur and absolute power under God. The other narrative, though, points to genuine improvements made under the king, a navy in much better shape than he found it after the indignities of James I's reign. Now, N.A.M. Rogers, who tends to win my brain in such things, arrives at a position where both are to some degree the case, a classic cautious historian's approach as opposed to the journalist. We should start with the state of the navy at the end of James's reign, then. It is worth noting that for many the English Navy already had acquired something of a special part in the national psyche. Obviously, it's a feeling without the strength and power it would acquire through the 18th and 19th centuries, but amongst many it's an object of national pride after the glories of good Queen Bess's reign. As well described, Things have moved on since those days, but still, people seemed to be constantly searching for new glories like Hawkins and Drake. 
just to manage your expectations, they don't get that. What they do get are the disasters of Buckingham's campaigns. Now, although Buckingham had been an energetic and reforming admiral, yet still he crashed and still he burned, and to a large degree he was reaping the harvest sown by James I. The problems with the navy were legion, and to a large degree internal. Naval administration had become more and more corrupt. The officers of the Navy and Ordnance Board were notorious for their light-fingeredness in their attempts to make their position of authorities pay, often which they'd paid for. Here are some of the ways in which the corrupt worked the system. So it might be relatively subtle, buying a load of cables of 90 fathoms long, let's say, of which only mm, 60 actually made it into the stores. Or taking worn cable and selling it on privately rather than turning it into oakum to cork the ships, which is what you're supposed to do with it. Then there was the dead souls problem. So let us say that the muster recorded on a particular ship for the purposes of wages might be hmm, 100 souls. Though in fact, there were only 70, and guess who was pocketing the 30 difference? Or it might be more straightforward than that, fake bills and receipts, that sort of thing. And in all, this corruption could be costing the Navy 53,000 quid a year, along with the impact of poor quality supplies and workmanship. So, for example, in 1610, the master shipwright Phineas Pett built a lovely new ship called the Prince Royal. Everyone was jolly pleased with her. But within 11 years, the ship, which cost 20,000 quid to make, was so weak that it needed £6,000 worth of repairs to be made. Because Pet had used cheap, unseasoned wood to build her. Alongside this kind of corruption went a whole deal of incompetence and confusion. The roles of the Navy Board had got confused with overlapping responsibilities. Also, the recruitment of seamen was horribly incompetent. Rather than experienced old sea dogs, any old Tom, Dick and Harriet were recruited. The standing officers then neglected the training they were supposed to give them anyway. The victuallers were utterly corrupt and up to the same game as everyone else of trying to make a bob or two on the side. And it was, of course, the ordinary seamen who suffered from the rotten, cheap meat and sour beer, which hardly made the best men come forward to join the Navy to see the world. They were much more likely to end up seeing the sea, or more specifically, the bottom of the sea, permanently. We had a taste of the quality of seamen with Buckingham's campaign and how few of them came home. That is a very quick flyby then of the state of the Navy by 1620, after 15 years of neglect, and I can almost feel the slumping of your shoulders, the tears in your eyes, the sobs creeping from between the fingers covering your face. How had the senior service, so recently described as England's garland, been allowed to come to this? Well, it's interesting you should ask that. And I shall try to answer as succinctly as I can. Firstly, there was just the system, the way things worked. It was utterly standard for naval administrators and ship's officers to have to buy their positions. The days of open and monitored recruitment procedures lie somewhere in the future. So, not only were you unlikely to get someone ideally suited for the work, or indeed particularly committed to it, you are likely to get someone looking to make a profit from the role. Because venal recruitment for officers was combined with a deadly partner, 
appalling payment of their salaries. So it was quite common for people to have to use their own funds to buy supplies or pay their men and then wait forever for the crown to repay them. So to give you an example of this, despite all of this, there were hard-working and conscientious officers. Alan Apsley became a vittler when his predecessor, Thomas Blodder, was actually caught for corruption, accused of defrauding the state of 10,000 quid over four years, or 15% of the total vittling budget. Apsley had the misfortune to be imposed during Buckingham's campaign, He was constantly left without salary and payment. He had to buy supplies from his own pocket. And when he died, the Crown owed him 100,000 quid, an absolutely massive amount of money, which Charles I then refused to pay to his heirs. No wonder everyone tried to make hay while they could. Sometimes it was difficult to tell the difference between the good and the bad. The Vice Admiral of Devon, James Bragg, was accused of corruption by his enemies and painted with the name Bottomless Bag. But in fact, by 1630, he was out of pocket by 51,000 quid. Another problem was that when laxity, dishonesty or corruption was discovered, James in particular was very reluctant to actually take action. Some were aware of how things had become and wanted to put it right. So the Earl of Northampton, for example managed to persuade the king to set up a royal commission in 1608 and another in 1613, and both of them identified corruption and actions to improve things. One of the men identified for corrupt practice indeed by the commissions was Phineas Pett and his purchasing of substandard supplies for the aforementioned Prince Royal. By way of an answer to the accusations made by the commission, James ostentatiously travelled down to name the ship in Pett's company. James was signalling to the Royal Commission that he viewed an attack on his royal servant as an attack on his own royal authority. Hands off my man. The Lord Admiral, the Earl of Nottingham, was slated by both commissions, not only for his own corruption, but for allowing bad practices to flourish. But Nottingham was allowed by James to retire at the end of a long career with full honours, No punishment was inflicted on the poor old royal servant. And that was common practice. There was little by way of carrot or stick to be a good and honest public servant. Meanwhile, the seas around England were a jungle, frontier land. I mean, we're used to this story, aren't we, to some degree, especially Cornish and West Country communities supplementing their income with a bit of light privateering or simply out-and-out piracy. By and large, English pirates picked off small merchantmen, but on occasion they aimed embarrassingly high. In 1603, the Venetian ambassador was robbed by English pirates on his way to England. That's got to count as awkward at the very least. But even worse, King Christian IV of Denmark suffered the same fate in 1614 on an official, very grand royal visit, which was excruciating. It has to be said that the authorities sometimes frankly connived at this as an extra source of income for themselves. So Richard Hawkins, the vice-admiral of Devon, sold blank pardons for pirates, for example. The Lord Admiral Nottingham was actually discovered taking bribes from pirates. If they were caught, as often as not, captains were pardoned. However, there was an interesting growing trend which was to change attitudes towards piracy as the boot was moved to the other foot. 
So, you may well be aware of the slave trading of the so-called Barbary pirates. Are you so aware? Well, if you're not, it's an interesting story. Slavery was, of course, endemic in Africa, as previously discussed some time ago, can't remember which episode, and the North African coastal towns like Tunis, Algiers and Saleh were part of a network that reached to sub-Saharan Africa and throughout the Ottoman Empire. From the 16th century to somewhere around the 19th century, they also ran a roaring trade in European slaves from Italy, the Eastern Med, and up north too to the Netherlands and as far as Iceland, and including Ireland and Western England, particularly Cornwall, and indeed the vulnerable fishing fleets on the Newfoundland banks. In the early 17th century, many ships operating from the Barbary coast were actually captained by English and Dutch. So in 1609, there's one Captain John Ward, and he arrived in Irish waters with a fleet armed with a thousand pirates. To try and get him to mend his thieving ways, he was offered a pardon from the king in 1612, and he refused, saying that, I am in a way a king myself. In 1607, Ward's capture of a Venetian ship valued at £100,000 caused an absolute sensation. And before long, Algerians and Tunisians learned how to handle the heavy European rigs and dispensed with European sailors. So by the 1620s, Algeria had the largest fleet in Europe. Between 1613 and 1621, the Algerians took an enormous tally. Here's a list for you, some numbers. They took an enormous tally of 446 Dutch, 193 French, 120 Spanish, 60 English and 56 German ships as prizes. Between 1609 and 1616, they took over 400 English merchantmen alone. In 1625, they took prizes right from out of Plymouth Harbour. And in 1626, the single Cornish village of East Loo lost 80 people to slaving raids and a further 69 ten years later. With all of this, it's calculated that between 1616 and 1642, up to 7,000 prisoners were taken for slavery, half of them from the West Country. In 1640, an Algerian ship took the English ship Rebecca, which was carrying 260,000 quids worth of Spanish-owned silver. I'd like to have been a fly on the wall when Charles informed the Spanish ambassador of that little faux pas. And the Barbary pirates were not alone. Dunkirk in the Spanish Netherlands was also a bed of pirates who took 300 ships in five years, about one-fifth of the entire English merchant fleet. Well, where was the jolly old English navy? I hear you cry. Well, it was completely unable to deal with this piracy to its continual shame and embarrassment. Not only were its ships in a poor state, badly manned, badly captained, but most of them were mothballed anyway unless there was a war on. The strategy was that, in peacetime, ships were stored in dry docks and the sailors all laid off, another reason for the poor quality of sailors, incidentally, since experienced sailors were continually thrown out in peacetime. So, there simply weren't enough ships to go pirate hunting. Not only that, but there weren't the right ships to do it anyway. To fight piracy... England needed small, nimble, lightly armed craft, not big warships. Pirates were completely unafraid of the English Navy because they knew they could outrun and outsail them and frequently took prizes right in sight of naval ships. It was humiliating. 
Okay, so by 1630, attitudes in England had thoroughly changed towards piracy, which, now that it wasn't paying into the bank accounts of the English, was seen for the scourge of trade that it was and always had been. And towards the navy, there was now a feeling of failure and despair. It wasn't helped by the fact that English pretensions were as high as their reputation and naval capacity had sunk low. The theory in Charles's court was a new theory of sovereignty of the narrow seas. Under this slightly dodgy theory, the English claimed sovereignty of the narrow seas as opposed to any other nation that bordered onto them, and expected all ships, therefore, to recognise this by dipping their flags in recognition to the English navy. Actually, many French, Spanish and Dutch ships did so just for an easy life. Funnily enough, the worst offenders are not doing so were English merchantmen. One of the changes that had taken place in Charles's navy was that gentlemen captains, who knew precious little about sailing, had replaced the professional masters, or tarpaulins as they were called. Now merchantmen, captains still by tarpaulins, showed their contempt for the gentlemen of the navy by refusing to dip their sails to them. Anyway, failure and despair. England appeared to have forgotten all that she'd learned. As it is now, there is neither order nor command, and it seemeth never hath been before. More ignorant captains and officers can hardly be found, and men more careless of his majesty's honour and profit. Well, from this low point, some improvements began to be made immediately under Charles's personal rule, Administration began to be improved, especially under the eye of secretary and experienced naval administrator John Coke. Some improvements in gunnery and ship design improved the quality of ships, but the big gain was in the improvement of purchasing and corruption. Supplies began to improve and the quality of seamen's training did too. But the big idea that drove the Privy Council and Charles's thinking was the need to restore the reputation of the English Navy. They had become a laughingstock. Their reputation was shot, none of their enemies or indeed pirates feared them. Now for England, this was particularly dangerous. For a country without the taxation and financial resources of France or Spain, or the flourishing commerce and income of the Dutch, and without a standing army of any power and reputation, the reputation of the English navy was all that maintained any kind of weight to English diplomacy and, indeed, security and protection from invasion. In 1634, therefore, Charles commissioned a massive new ship to be a new flagship for the fleet. But for that, and to restore naval strength more generally, there was something crucial missing, and its name was money, and lots of it. And it is to that critical subject we will turn in the next episode, before we can then finish the story of the King's Navy. Until then, please don't forget the idea of Chris the Christmas gift of membership, or the free video of UELM to be seen at thehistoryofengland.co.uk as a little Christmas present from me to you. More importantly, this is the last episode of the year, because next week is Christmas Day. Yay! I hope you have all the most fabulous Christmas and New Year. Do make sure you settle down and watch Chariots of Fire and the Great Escape after listening to History and Technica. And best wishes for you and your families. 
I will see you once more, bright and early on the 1st of January, to help you get over the post-party blues and welcome 2023 into the world. Good luck then, everyone, and have a fantastic Christmas. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.